Hey, what's going on, everyone? We are so glad you're choosing to take time out of your day to listen to our sermons. Our prayer for you is that these messages would not replace your belonging to a local church, but would only be supplemental in your walk with Jesus. With that being said, we love you, and we hope you enjoy the message today. Good morning. Praise God. So good to have you here today. Somebody said that it looked like I need to be hanging on a pole in the breeze somewhere today. I haven't been on a pole in years. <laughs> I make no apology, though, for being a patriot and a flag-waving American. I still get a lump in my throat when we pledge allegiance to the flag, when I hear the star-spangled banner saying, right, when it's saying properly, it still moves me. But all of that said, I first and foremost pledge allegiance to Christ, my King, and His kingdom. And I happily declare my dependence on Him, and I hope you feel that way as well. America isn't a great nation because of our natural resources. Our nation has great resources, but so do other nations. Our nation hasn't been a great nation simply because our, high, our IQ is somehow per capita better than others. You could almost argue that the opposite is true these days. America has been a great nation that she's been is because God has blessed America. And admittedly, I, I, I truly believe our God is removing His hand of blessing from our nation. I also believe He can and will bring a spiritual awakening to this land and to His church in these last days. Like many of you, Teresa and I, we stop every evening at 7.14 following that, that prayer initiative that began last year. And it doesn't matter where we are. We've been in restaurants with friends. We put down our forks and we pray at 7.14. I have an alarm that goes off on my phone. And we pray for our nation. We pray for revival. It's based on that passage in 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and I'll heal their land. And that's why we stop at 7.14 and we pray. I also meet every Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. in that North Foyer room with about nine or ten men who are given to prayer. And we pray. For South Valley, we pray for our state, we pray for our nation, we pray for our new pastor, uh, among other things, believing that God is going to send the spiritual awakening that America so desperately needs today. I know, folks, I know, we're living, we're living in demoralizing times, and I'm heartsick over the accelerating pace that our nation and our world is, is going and how they are proudly embracing every form of perversion and wickedness. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Paul told us that in the last days, perilous times would come. You can hardly watch a news broadcast. They're not reporting some new violent act committed somewhere against many or by few. Our nation is on its way down, but my challenge to you and to myself is to remain joyfully committed to our Savior and King in the midst of this growing darkness in our land. Remember the words of our Lord to His disciples, John 16, These things have I spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation that's the opposite of peace. But be of good cheer, I have what? Overcome the world. And folks, I will say to you, how can we be pessimistic? When the future is in the hands of the one who knows the end from the beginning, our nation still has a godly remnant of people who know how to pray to an infinitely holy God who's all-powerful, who rules the world in sovereign authority and works all things together after the counsel of His own will. And as long as we have that, we have hope. We can still hope for, we can still pray for, we can still work toward a true spiritual revival 
in our land and around the world. The Bible even suggests a very simple prayer for times like these. Look at this passage, Psalm 85, verse 6. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? As I was researching passages of Scripture for this message this week, I was surprised at how many times the psalmist prays for revival. In Psalm 80, verse 18, revive us and we will call upon your name. Psalm 119, verse 25, revive me according to your word. Verse 37, revive me according to your ways. Verse 40, revive me in your righteousness. Verse 88, revive me according to your loving kindness. Verse 149, revive me according to your justice. Verse 156 of Psalm 119, revive me according to your judgments. And in Psalm 143, verse 11, revive me, O Lord, for your name's sake. Folks, revival is God's work. It's not something we manufacture, right? We, we are not going to, to cause a revival. It is a heaven-sent, special season of rejuvenation that God pours out on His church that spills over into evangelistic zeal. When God revives His people, He does it to redeem lost people. He wants to see people come to Christ. And folks, we can't call down fire from heaven to light the altar like Elijah did. But I say to you, we can get the kindling ready and offer ourselves as spirit-drenched firewood. Lord, prepare me. Make me what you need me to be, God, to bring revival to this land. The Old Testament book of 2 Chronicles, and that's where I want you to begin finding your way towards now. I hope you brought a Bible, a digital version, paper version. Make sure you find your way to 2 Chronicles. It's the Bible's handbook on revival. The writer, most likely Ezra, demonstrates to us over and again how God never gave up on the nation of Judah. 2 Chronicles catalogs several national revivals that reversed the nation from its downward slide into absolute corruption. You can see in chapter 20 uh, under a King Jehoshaphat and how there was reformation taking place and, and the Word of God was being taught throughout the cities under his leadership. You could read about Hezekiah who was a man who did that which was right in the sight of the Lord and, and he led his people through, uh, again, calling them back to the Word of God and to proper worship in the temple and, and all of those things. And even after the eventual judgment and destruction of the nation when God through the hand of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 36 of 2 Chronicles hits them and carries them off to Babylon, God stayed in the business of reviving His people. Now if you have a Bible, I want you to find your way to 2 Chronicles <coughs> excuse me, chapter 34. And the first thing I want us to talk about is a humble leader. A humble leader. Now, Josiah ascended the throne in the, during the darkest days that Judah had ever known. Now, just for clarity, let me, let me give you quickly a brief background. After David, who was the greatest king Israel ever had, Solomon reigned. Solomon, for the most part, was a good king. He never knew war. But when Solomon passed from the scene, his sons were, became foolish. And shortly after Solomon's death, the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes, if you will, began a civil conflict. They entered into a civil war. Ten nations to the north, known as Israel, and then the two nations, two tribes to the south, Benjamin and Judah. They split and they began to war with each other. And this has been going on. Now, Josiah is going to be king of Judah, the two southern tribes. But here's what you need to know about Josiah. Josiah's grandfather was a man by the name of Manasseh. And he was one of the most wicked kings in the Bible. 
and certainly the most wicked king that Judah ever had. Israel, the ten tribes to the north, had their fair share of ungodly leadership. Rare did they have a king sit on the throne that followed God. Judah, the two tribes to the south, they frequently had men of God who did that which right in the sight of the Lord, but they also had their share of very ungodly men. Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh, reigned for 45 years in Jerusalem, and he had led that nation in the influence of his incredibly evil ways. Manasseh is actually Judah's version of Israel's Ahab. If you know anything about Israel's king, the worst king that the the ten tribes to the north ever had was a man by the name of Ahab. Here's what it says about Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 30. Now Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who came before him. How would you like that to be the, the epitaph on your gravestone? This was the worst person ever. How would you like that? Well, Manasseh ran a very close second to Ahab. He wasn't king in Israel. He was king in Judah. And this is what it says about Manasseh. If you're in 2 Chronicles 33, look at verse 9. So Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. Wow. In other words... Those nations that occupied the land when God brought Joshua and the young Hebrews slaves out of Egypt and brought them finally into that promised land and said, drive the inhabitants out of the land. Those inhabitants of the land were throwing their children into the fires of Molech. It was, there was immorality. There was all kinds of evil and wickedness and God drove the people out of the land. It says that Manasseh was worse than the people God told them to drive out. That's how bad Manasseh was. And during his reign, Judah sank in a quagmire of, of idolatry, occultism, humanism, uh, human sacrifice, lawlessness, violence, military weakness, moral confusion. You name it. They were down the tubes. And because of that, the Bible tells us that the Lord brought the captains of the Assyrian army down and took Manasseh and carried him off to Babylon in hooks and chains, and imprisoned him. Now I'm telling you all of this because I believe it was while Josiah's grandfather Manasseh was imprisoned in Babylon that the seeds of revival began to germinate. Something happened to Manasseh that changed everything in his life. Verse 12 in chapter 33, Now when he, that is Manasseh, was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Late in life, Manasseh turned to the Lord. And, and evidently it was not one of those things that we call a foxhole conversion. You know what a foxhole conversion is, right? Wherein you're in a bad place, you cry out to God, and as soon as you get out of that bad place, you're going to give God a second thought. This isn't that. This was real. Late in life, Manasseh turned genuinely to the Lord. You know what that tells me? There's hope for anyone. There's hope for anyone. Second Chronicles 33 mentions the reforms that he began to institute. You see, while he was in prison, he repented, and God actually allowed him to come back to Judah and reclaim the throne. And when he came back, he came back a different man. Verse 15, he took away the foreign gods and the idols from the house of the Lord and all the altars that had been built in the mount of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem and he cast them out of the city. It says in verse 16 that he repaired the altar of the Lord, sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it and he commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. But his spiritual conversion came too late to influence his nation. There, weren't, there wasn't enough time for him to take care of everything he wanted to do. Eventually he died. He had a son who took the throne by the name of Ammon. He picked up where his dad's wickedness left off. He was so bad 
that his own servants assassinated him two years into his administration. He was so bad, his own people killed him. Following him now enters Josiah. Josiah ascended the throne of Judah at the ripe old age of eight. Incredibly, this young boy had a heart for the Lord. I don't, I don't know what, the, what made the difference, but in my mind's eye, I, I think that when Manasseh came back, he started making up for lost time and he wanted to influence his grandson. And he began to telling, him, telling his grandson about his father, who was Hezekiah, who did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. And Hezekiah knew about the reformations of the Lord. And he begins telling his, his grandson about his dad. That would be my, my, my thinking on it. Whatever the case, this young boy had an incredible heart for God. Look at verse 2. Now we're in chapter 34. Speaking of Josiah, it says that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father, David. And here's a phrase that I think is only used of this king. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. In other words, this young man was so serious in his commitment to God, nothing caused him to deviate from his commitment to serve God. He turned not from the right hand nor to the left. Now, since he was only eight, the crown, and when the crown descended on him, Josiah had little to do with running his nation until he began to take charge at the age of 16. Look at verse 3. For in the eighth year of his reign, how old was when he started? He was eight years old when he started, but now he had been reigning for eight years. That means he's 16 now. While he was still young, it says he began to seek the God of his father. And in the twelfth year, now he's 20, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images. Now he's picking up where grandfather Manasseh left off. He didn't finish what he started. God began something in Manasseh. But he was unable to finish it. And now Josiah comes along and at 16 years of age, 20 years of age, he picks up that mantle and he begins to cleanse. And I think, folks, it is amazing what God can do through a teenager or a young man or young woman. In the 18th year of his reign, when Josiah now is 26, he, became, he becomes concerned about the temple of God that is on the hill above his palace. And he begins to initiate this extensive renovation project to restore it to its former glory. The needed money begins to pour in and verse 10 says that they put the money in the hands of the foreman who had oversight of the house of the Lord and gave it to the workmen who worked in the house of the Lord to repair and restore the house. And they gave it to the craftsmen and the builders to buy hewn stone and timber for beams and to floor the houses which the kings of Judah had destroyed. And the men did the work faithfully. Their overseers were Jahath and Obadiah the Levites, of the sons of Merari and Zechariah and Meshulam, of, of the sons of the Kohathites to supervise. Others of the Levites, all of whom were skillful with instruments of music. I, when, I, when I was looking at this week, I thought that's an interesting thing to put into a list of people who are doing construction work. These men are craftsmen working with hewn stone and timbers, but it's important enough that they include that some of the people that were there were great musicians. And let me tell you what I'm thinking about that. I don't think we want to miss the fact that part of the revival that is taking place in Judah has a very prominent place of music and praise in it. Don't underestimate the the power of what happens on this platform and in this congregation on Sunday mornings. You are an extension, part of the praise team. Amen? What happens is we begin to sing and to praise. And I just think it's interesting that that's included. 
They didn't have Pandora. They couldn't listen to the radio. So maybe what they had was some skillful musicians while they were working, sitting there playing and singing and praising, and everybody's singing while they're working. I don't know. I just think it's fascinating that it includes that. But it goes on to say some more about the Levites. It says that the Levites were also over the burden bearers and were overseers of all who did work in any kind of service. And some of the Levites were scribes, some were officers, some were gatekeepers. What strikes me about these verses from 10 to 13 is from the foreman who's, who has general oversight, he's the general contractor, all the way down to verse 13 to people whose responsibilities are just to keep the gate. What it tells me is that everybody involved in this renovation and in this, this growing revival Everybody is on the same page with the same goal. And listen, there's no service too small. You might have been large and in charge, or you may have just had the lowly responsibility of keeping the gate. All service to the Lord Jesus Christ is important, folks. Everything. You're not so old that you don't have a significant place of service in His kingdom if you have retired from serving Jesus and you're a senior citizen, I'm going to say it nicely. Shame on you. Don't retire from your service to Christ. Amen? Amen. Every service was important. Never discount what your small contribution to the work of the Lord might be. Classic example, Matthew. Jesus got a Ten to 15,000 people, and he wants to feed them all. And all there is is they find this little boy, brought his sack lunch, had a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread in it, and Jesus feeds the multitude, gives them fish sandwiches. Don't underestimate what little you have and how great God can use you. But not only was there a humble leader that, that began to initiate this revival among God's people, but also I want you to see there was also a holy book. Remember Psalm 119 verse 25, Revive me according to your word. I will say this, genuine revival when it breaks out in a church will not be apart from a new commitment to the authority of the scriptures. That's why I so often encourage you, bring your Bible, open your Bible, put notes in your Bible, mark in your Bible. God's Word is, is, is so incredibly important, and that's an understatement. Here is God's statement about His Word. I have exalted my Word above my own name. That tells me how God feels about His Word. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will what? Not pass away. And so what happens here is there, this renovation project is going on and they uncover a long lost treasure. Look at verse 14. Now when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah, the priest, found the book of the law of the, the Lord given by Moses. They found this, this ancient writing, at this point hundreds of years old, and they brought the book to Josiah, and it says that they read it, they read it to him. And, and folks, God's word struck his heart like a two-edged sword. The scriptures revealed that the sins of his fathers and his grandfathers was far worse than he had even realized. And he realized our nation is in grave moral peril. And it says in verse 19, because of his guilt and because of, of this, this, this awareness, it says in verse 19 that he, that he tore his, his clothes. That was a sign of deep lamentation, grief. And he earnestly sought to begin to understand God's will more clearly. When he heard it, it, it struck him. He said, man, I've got to know more. And so what he does is he says in verse 21, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that is found. I want to talk to you about the, the, the phrase. I have it underlined here, Israel and Judah. I, I want to mention something here in just a moment about that. But for those who are left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that is found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. 
And so what they do is they go find this prophetess by the name of Huldah. And here is her response to King Josiah. First part of it is bad news. Then she answered these men that had came to her on behalf of Josiah. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants, all the curses that are written in the book which they have read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out in this place and not be quenched. In other words, God's judgment on this nation is inevitable. That's probably not what you really want to hear if you're Josiah. But it's true. God will make Judah answer for their sins. As a matter of fact, it goes all the way back to his grandfather, Manasseh. I want to show you something. As a cross-reference, if you mark your Bible or make notes, put down 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 3 and 4. Here's what it says. Surely at the commandment of the Lord this came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done and also because of the innocent blood that he had shed for he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood which the Lord would not pardon Listen to me carefully. I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm going to say. America, America has gone, has gone too far not to be judged by God. We've gone too far. Now listen, our prayers for revival, when I pray for revival, it's not so God removes His righteous judgment. I, I, I can't ask Him to not do what His holiness demands that He do. Folks, we're living in a nation that parades perversion and calls it pride. We have slaughtered countless thousands and thousands of unborn human beings and their blood is crying up from the ground. God will not let that go. But when I pray for revival, it's not for God's righteous judgments to be removed. My, my prayers are like those of Habakkuk. Habakkuk got this word from God as well. Habakkuk looked at his, his nation and he goes, there's perversion in the land, there's, there's wickedness, there's no justice, the law was so corrupt. And he says, how long, O oh Lord, when are you going to finally do something about this mess, God, and bring a revival? In essence, what he's asking, and God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to bring a nation more wicked than you. I'm going to bring the bitter and the hasty Chaldeans, and they're going to sweep through, and they're going to they're wipe you out. Well, that's not what Habakkuk wanted to hear. But Habakkuk works through all of that. And here, here is the way that you and I need to pray for revival, just like Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. In other words, God, when you told me what you were going to do, it shook me up. O Lord, here it is. Revive us. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Listen, God is going to do something in our nation. And it will be perfectly in accordance with His sovereign will. But what we need to be praying is, God, in the midst of what you're doing, remember mercy. Ignite within us your people not, not to be cast down, not to be, not to be downtrodden and, 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 and depressed over all of this, but help us to, to, to lead others to faith in Jesus Christ because America's only hope is Jesus Christ. There is no other hope. Now that's the bad news that he gets from the prophetess. But it gets good. Verse 26 but as for the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord in this manner, you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the words which you have heard, 
Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard His words against this place and against its inhabitants, and you humbled yourselves before me and you tore your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, says the Lord, and surely I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place and its inhabitants. And so they brought the word back to the king. In other words, Josiah, because of your response, I'm going to do it after you go, but it is coming. Josiah gets this word and it encourages him so much that now he wants to just shift into high gear. What's began, he's going to start fanning the flames. And so we, we, we go from a humble leader to a holy book to a hungry people. Encouraged by our words, Judah announced, Josiah announces a meeting. Look at verse 30. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The priests and the Levites and all the people, great and small, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the house of the Lord. Then the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all of his heart, all of his soul, and to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. And folks, the people were moved by the sight of their king and how he was burdened for this revival, and they joined him in this commitment. And while Josiah led this revival from the throne, there was a prophet who was a contemporary of Josiah named Jeremiah. And he began to proclaim it from the pulpit and preach it in the streets and the squares and the temple courtyards. Soon other prophets such as Zaphaniah and Nahum joined them. And this revival began to take hold. And here's the thing that I want you to know about Josiah. I mentioned a while ago that he said something about Judah and Israel. The nation has been divided. But what is going to happen in Josiah's day and what Josiah is concerned about is he wants his nation healed. And do you know what's about to happen in, in the Bible after Josiah passes from the scene? Two chapters away, we're in 34, by the time you get to 36, Nebuchadnezzar comes down and takes the majority of the people of Judah into captivity, into Babylon, where they will be for 70 years. They will stay there for 70 years, and while they are there, you want to know one of the most important things that happened in Babylon while God's people were there? They began to canonize the writings that we now call our Old Testament. This is, listen, all of this starts, all of this starts with Manasseh repenting, his grandson picking up the flames and doing something that renovates the temple, that refreshes the people's love and commitment to God, that eventually they will go into captivity and while they are there, they will complete the Old Testament putting all of those books, those writings, the Psalms, the, the prophets, and all that stuff together. And you know what? They come out of Babylon, and the nation of Israel is put back together. And to this day, to this day, na the nation of Israel as a whole has never again, and I will use the biblical word, gone whoring after other gods. They have maintained one God. It all began through Josiah's revival, the revival that happened in Josiah's day. Folks, I can tell you this. The national reforms that took place in Judah at the darkest day, or the darkest time in that nation's existence, were as radical and as, as complete as anything that Martin Luther or John Calvin ever undertook in the 1600s. The 16th century, excuse me. Those men began a reformation, and what basically was a call back to biblical authority, getting back to the Word of God. And today we are still 
stealing the results of what God did back in the 16th century. Furthermore, the revival in Josiah's day eventually inflamed a group of young people and propelled them into a lifetime of service. Boys like Daniel, Hanani, Mishael, Azariah, also known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These boys would be carried away into Babylon after Josiah's gone. They would be carried away. And you know the story in Daniel. These men stood fearlessly for God in the midst of a decadent and perverse Chaldean culture. There's no doubt in my mind, folks, that the revival that began in Josiah's day helped to shape these young men and others to stand for God in the midst of the darkness of a Chaldean culture. This is the kind of revival, folks, that we need today in America. Amen? The good news is that revival in our land is possible. It's possible, and we have the history to prove it. As dire as our present time is right now, America has been at this low point before. If you know anything about history, America's been low before. As bad as things look right now, I truly believe that there is hope for America. When the pilgrims landed on our shores at Plymouth Rock in 1620, their main objective was to be able to freely preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and the colonies were built on, 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 that was their heart's desire. Shortly after the pilgrims came, another group followed them known as the Puritans. The Puritans arrived in this new land and it was, it was the Puritans who founded Harvard College. Whose primary purpose when it was started was to train ministers and Christian leaders, if you can believe that. Today, you hardly can mention Christ on a campus at some of these old universities. But that was what Harvard was started for, was to train missionaries and Christian leaders. Any person who honestly researches our nation's history, keyword honestly, will admit that America was founded upon Christian ideals and Christian virtues. Throughout the 1600s, as time went on, the spiritual and moral condition of the colonies began to decline at a rate that alarmed genuine believers. So God, in the early 1720s, unleashed a small revival in New Jersey that would eventually blaze through the rest of the colonies and change history. Even secular historians speak of the first great awakening and how it changed colonial America. A New Jersey Dutchman named Theodore Frelinghuysen began to preach in his church evangelism. He preached the pure gospel. He preached that people needed to repent of their sins and be born again. Interestingly, his biographer said that the old people did not accept his message, but the young people responded with enthusiasm and revival broke out. And the revival began to spread from New Jersey, it made its way to Northampton, Massachusetts, and the revival flame then was fanned by a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Perhaps you have heard of Jonathan Edwards. He preached a sermon that is probably the greatest sermon ever preached on American soil. I listened to it this week. A pastor on YouTube actually dressed up in colonial garb, and I think he had the entire sermon memorized. Excellent job. Powerful sermon. Made me weep as I listened to it. But this young man preached this message on Sunday, July 8th, 1741. This Thursday will be 280 years since he preached it. But he preached this sermon in Enfield, Connecticut. He was going through this town and he was going to stop and listen to this preacher at this church. Turns out that that particular speaker could not make it that night and the church asked him, would you please fill the pulpit? And he did. It was said that there was a group of women who had spent the entire previous night in prayer for revival and he stands in that pulpit and he preaches a title, the message entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
There weren't 500 people there that night. But those who were there and heard it and wept and repented, shared it. And in short time, 500 people came to faith in Jesus Christ. At the same time this was going on in colonial America across the ocean, there was a man by the name of John Wesley who was riding the crest of a similar revival. And along with him there was a very powerful preacher named George Whitefield who traveled between England and America and God used George Whitefield mightily to spread the revival fires throughout the rest of the the colonies during early America. Countless thousands were brought to Christ. It changed the moral, the spiritual, and political climate of our land. And historians who have written about this said, the reason that 50 out of the 56 people who signed our Declaration of Independence were Christians is because of that spiritual awakening. Think about it. 50 of the 56 people professed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior as they signed that document. After a period of time, the nation began to go downhill again. But God did a similar thing in the 1800s. Our nation slipped into moral decay. During the first great awakening, it was estimated that 40 to 50% of the population attended a church. By the 1790s, that number was down to 5 to 10%, which is just a little bit worse than it is today. But the revival began when a few students at Hamden Sydney College in Virginia locked themselves in a room for fear of of the other students. The the other students were were persecuting them and, and, and making it very difficult for them. And they locked themselves in this room to begin to pray for revival. And then they were discovered and a riot broke out on the campus because of that. The campus president came down took that group of praying boys into his office, shut the door, and began praying with them. And what happened was, in a short time, half of the campus had been converted to Jesus Christ. And the revival began to spread through other campuses, and thousands of young people came to Jesus Christ. After some years... The passion of revival died and America sank again into spiritual lethargy and godlessness. But in 1857, another revival broke out. Historians have many names for this revival. It's often referred to as the third great awakening in America. It's also called the Fulton Street Revival, the Businessmen's Revival, the Prayer Revival, the Layman's Revival. It goes by different names. But among the catalysts for this particular revival was a man by the name of Jeremiah Lamphire who announced a prayer meeting to be held at noon on September 23rd, 1857 in a Dutch Reformed church building on Fulton Street in New York City. Almost no one came to that first prayer meeting. But within a matter of just a few months, 50,000 people across the city of New York were stopping what they were doing and praying every day at noon. That, res- that particular revival began to spread into Cleveland, Detroit, Chicago, and Cincinnati, and it's estimated between one and two million people found Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior because one man called a prayer meeting. This third revival also became the launching pad for such ministries as the Young Men's Christian Association, the YMCA. Also out of that revival became the Moody Bible Institute, a great, a great place for studying God's Word. And also a number of denominational youth organizations. But even as, even as the revival continued, when the Civil War broke out a few years later, between 1861 and 1864, God's Spirit was still at work in our nation. And major revivals broke out in both armies. You'll never read about this in secular history books. But it has been estimated that 200,000 Union Army soldiers and approximately 150,000 Confederate soldiers trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior during those years. Sometimes churches held preaching and praying service 24 hours a day just trying to accommodate all of the soldiers wanting to get inside. And a great revival also occurred 
among Robert E. Lee's forces in the fall of 1863 and the winter of 1864, during which time some estimated 7,000 soldiers came to faith in Jesus Christ. It's happened in America before. And if God did it then, shouldn't we be encouraged that God could do it again? God brought a global revival in the early 1900s known as the Welsh Revival. Happened in the country of Wales. The person most associated with the Welsh Revival was a young coal miner by the name of Evan Roberts. He was a Bible college student. And he took a break from school and he returned to his hometown to preach his first sermon. The sermon featured four main points. Number one, confess any known sin to God and put away wrongdoing to others. Number two, put away any doubtful habit. Number three, obey the Holy Spirit promptly. Number four, confess faith in Jesus Christ openly. Only 17 people showed up for Robert's sermon. But by the end of the week, 60 people had been converted and revival broke out in Wales. Within three months, historians tell us, 100,000 people had trusted Christ and were added to the churches in Wales. All across the nation's theaters closed, jails emptied, churches filled, soccer matches were canceled to avoid conflict with revivals, if you can imagine such a thing. <laughs> One writer said this, Welsh miners were so thoroughly converted that their ponies and their mules had to be retrained to work without the prodding of curse words. <laughs> On March 29, 1905, Roberts opened a series of meetings on Shaw Street Chapel or in Shaw Street Chapel in Liverpool, England. Thousands thronged around the church and people poured in from all parts of England and Scotland and Ireland, the whole continent, and even some people from America came over. Multitudes were converted and found new joy in Jesus Christ. One of the men who actually experienced this revival was a man named Reverend R.B. Jones. And he said the sense of God's presence in Wales was all pervasive. Listen to what he, what he writes. Quote, it mattered not where one went. The conscious reality of the nearness of God followed. In the revival gatherings in homes, on the streets, in the mines and factories, in the schools, yes, and even in the theaters and drinking saloons. The strange result was that wherever people gathered became a place of awe. And places of amusement were practically empty, end quote. That's what revival does. I don't know about you, but my heart is increasingly burdened for revival. Let me tell you where it starts. 1 Peter 4.17 says this, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. It starts with God's people. If my people, which are called by my name. Folks, it's time for us to call ourselves onto the carpet for our gossip. For our, our malicious talking about one another. We need to call ourselves on the carpet about our half-baked, lazy commitment to Jesus Christ. And why we have sat in that second chair way too long that Pastor Tim spoke of a few weeks ago. Some of you will remember that. Others, you have no idea what I'm talking about. He's just talking about sitting in the first chair, meaning an absolute sold-out commitment to Jesus Christ. Folks, if we want to see it, it begins by us judging ourselves, looking at it and saying, being honest. I have become lazy in my service for Jesus. I'm willing to let others do the work. I'm willing to let others give to the work of the house of the Lord. Folks, it's time that judgment begins at the house of God. And it fit, that fits God's prescription for revival if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves, just like Josiah did. And pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sins, and heal their land. That is exactly what God did through the revival in Josiah's day. Judah and Israel, at civil war in previous years, eventually came back together to form one nation. God healed their land. It started, it started with humility 
and an acknowledgement of our sin. And that's where it'll start today. Your own personal life, my life, can be radically impacted if we will simply come and get on our face before God and acknowledge where we have let go. And it's time to recommit to the king of this universe and his plan because he is going to bring judgment on this land. But in the midst of those years, he will remember mercy and he can use us. He can use us to take the gospel of Jesus Christ out of those doors and begin to effectively and powerfully share it. God, I don't even know how to end this message other than just to tell you that I don't want revival bad enough. I confess to you, God, my lethargy. I, I, I confess to you how I can be busy about many things, kind of like Martha in the book of Luke. I can, I'm busy for Jesus, but I sometimes forget to sit at your feet and just be in awe of you. Everyone in this room, Lord, if they're honest with themselves and they know Christ, could pinpoint something in their life that they've let go. Commitment, faithfulness, hit and miss when it comes to worship attendance. We have so many options out there and we're so quick to choose other things than what's really important. Your church is in desperate need of revival. Begin it in my own heart, my God. Father, move in this place. There's few people here. There's nobody even listening online right now. This is between us and you. And Father, we pray that you would stir our hearts and change us so that we might be a catalyst for revival. Start a fire within our own souls, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a good and godly week.